back guys to another episode of Talking with Alicia, a place where I celebrate women in their authentic form. So our guest is um, Dr. Amy Reiter. You're a neuroscientist and a research lecturer in the School of Health and Biomedical Sciences in Melbourne. So thank you so much for t um, have taking out the time to be a part of this. No worries. So um, let's start from the beginning of um, why you actually got into, so you did psychology at university and why you actually got into neuroscience and that sort of field and so. Yeah, so when uh, I did my undergraduate degree at University of Birmingham mm -hmm. um, and I was doing psychology and I really liked sort of the aspects of the like bio so all the like how the brain works, but on that real biological fundamental uh, basis, particularly as well, I was really interested in how drugs interacted with the brain and psychopharmacology and the idea about how neurotransmitter systems could be changed and that changes your behaviour. So I became really intrigued with that and I was really fortunate to get um, a Wellcome Trust summer studentship while I was an undergraduate, which actually allowed me to go into a lab and do some proper research. Because um, one of the things that I found difficult when I was doing psychology was that I really wasn't interested in sort of the social psychology side of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... I really like the more biological, hardcore, uh, biology, neuroscience side of what I was doing. Um, so I ended up working in a lab one summer, and I got to use rats, and we trained them so that they were drinking these like sugary fluids, and we manipulated the uh, cannabinoid system. So if you're me, and you're like... I think I was like 22 at the time, I was just kind of mind blown by the fact that you could not only give rats cannabis, basically, but um, be able to look at how these systems are affecting eating behavior. Effectively, I spent the summer giving the rats the munchies. And that kind of sold me on science. I was like, what? You can, you can do this for like a job? This is awesome. And, this and from that... I went on um, and finished up my final year and then I was really lucky to be able to start into my PhD straight off from my undergraduate and went to Cardiff University in Wales and they've got an excellent behavioural neuroscience facility there and I just really wanted to look more into how the brain controls behaviour. So from undergraduate being able to have those opportunities of undergraduate research projects, uh, summer scholarships, and then taking that forward into getting a studentship to be able to do research for four years at a great university was just um, such a privilege in a way when I think about it. Yeah. And I feel really lucky that I've been able to take it from there for my PhD. Um, what, Do you want to talk about what, what, what happened after PhD? Yeah, no, I was just going to ask um, if someone 
for the same opportunity, what would you advise them to do when they're on undergrad? Oh, can you repeat that? Sorry, my Skype broke up. Um, it's just if someone's looking for the same opportunities at like your research lab when they're an undergrad, um, how do you think you um, apply for it? Or I've never heard of that because um, I'm still an undergrad right now. And there's not a lot of people in chemistry or science that go into research. It's usually just what's taught. So how, how do you think you would go on about doing that, like the summer scholarships or the research? Well, um, in my lab, uh, when I was working in Sydney, I always made a point of, at the end of my lectures, saying to students, hey, so if you're interested in actually getting some hands-on experience in a lab, um, please do like send me an email if you're interested. And I think that that was me sort of trying to pay it forward for students. Yeah. Like I had that yeah. opportunity and I was really lucky to be in a situation where these kind of research assistant positions were available um, and I've always opened my lab to show even if it's just showing somebody something that they've never seen before mm -hmm. and I think that that's really important for people to get that sort of flavor from going from having um, an undergraduate that's you know very theoretical yeah. Uh, yeah. rather than you know, a laboratory-based practical course where it's almost vocational. Mm -hmm. um, because really, being a science is a vocation. It's not... Yeah, a, it's not you just know, reading the, something off a piece of paper. Yeah. yeah. Especially it's not like... Um, yeah, I would think psychology is just really rote learning, so it was just literally pen and paper. I wouldn't... You wouldn't think that psychology involves all these different kind of experiments because you kind of forget about the um, brains that, like, the... You only see it as a more... Um, how it affects society and that kind of thing, rather than a technical science. Yeah. If you get what I'm saying, so it is really. So that was one of the things that I really wanted to move away from, from yeah. just my undergraduate training, was to try and get so that I was a scientist, rather than having a, a broad undergraduate degree that would qualify me basically to, you know, eventually either enter into some sort of clinical psychology or to become like uh, occupational psychologist or uh, try and get into forensic psychology or um, utilize that sort of degree to allow me to you know, be a teacher, be you know, work in human resources or that kind of uh, field. So um, I come from a really scientific background and that was one of the things that I found was important to me was to maintain that sort of science and doing a PhD obviously allowed me to really study science mm -hmm. in its like more more uh, classical setting, you know, testing mm -hmm. hypotheses, examining you know, certain phenomena. So that was that was really uh, important. I think in terms of summer studentships and research opportunities for undergraduates they're not something that just gets given to you on a plate nobody's going to tap you on the shoulder lecturers are all probably really really busy and unless you're putting yourself out there and making it so you're no, interested not. eager and willing mm -hmm. and have the free time available I mean, they can be such key things you can't just gain experience 
in a way that, you know, oh, I volunteered in volunteered in this lab for like two weeks and I saw like three things. I mean, that's really nice, but at the same time, if you really want to get to grips, you have to have that sort of um, real time commitment to learning something and to doing something that way. Um, I, mean, I found it frustrating when students would come to me and be like, oh, I'd really like to work in your lab. I'm free on a Friday afternoon. I'm like, well, that's really not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> as much as I would like you to be in the lab on a Friday afternoon, even I don't want to be in the lab on a Friday afternoon, <laughs> let alone be like showing you something. Yeah. So it's, it's that, yeah, it's it's that what time you make, It's what you make of it, yeah. Can you repeat? Sorry. Oh, sorry. It's what you make of it. That's what I was saying. It's what you make of your time at university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, and I know that for students, it's so time-consuming. You've got your study, you've got your um, families and relationships and friends and all of that social life going on. And then for a lot of people as well, they're trying to balance out some paid work because... Yeah. You know, it's expensive, you've got your tuition fees and your living expenses and everything else on top of that. So I totally understand that, you know, then having a spare, like, sudden, like, eight hours a week to go and do volunteer work is a big ask for people in terms of their time. And the first thing that's going to slip along the way is, you know, when you've got a lot of deadlines and you've got a lot of things, you know, all at once, the, the, the thing that you'll give up the first will be the voluntary work a lot of the time mm -hmm. because, you know, you just volunteering doesn't pay the rent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but thank you so much. That was interesting. So after, so after your time at um, Wales, what was your next step? Um... I completed my PhD and then I did a postdoc back at the University of Birmingham um, working on how memories are formed. So really looking at the molecular basis of memory. It was kind of interesting because I was back at the university that I studied at as an undergraduate, but now I was a postdoc which was really strange because you, know, you see all these places and you're like, oh my God, I remember falling down those stairs or like, oh, these students, like what? Like the beers have gone up yeah, loads. Because now that um, I'm graduating, I don't expect myself to go back, if you get what I'm saying, but to just go back if I was ever to, especially as a, um, in a postdoctorate, it just feel really like I'm out of place in a way. I can imagine yeah. that. I still feel like I'm getting a bit old because it is my um, it's my fourth year. So just seeing those first years, I'm just like, I just feel really. I was like, I was in your position not so long ago, and it just feels yeah. missing that contrast. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely weird going back into that sort of academic setting. Yeah. But I think of it as like being different layers of the cake. It's like when you are an undergraduate, you might just be, you know, the the filling or the icing. Um, but, you know, when you're an academic member of staff or you're a research member of staff, you're just a different component. Yeah. You're separate entirely. And you don't really 
deal with, you know, I'm not going to have some student come up to me and be like, oh, yeah, let's go out and, you know, do the, like, pub crawl or whatever, because yeah. it's not going to happen. So you're working in, like, a different yeah. sphere, really. Yeah, you're very separate from that. And you do get glimpses of that when you are an undergraduate as well, if you're doing these kind of research placements or volunteering with a, a lab um, mm -hmm. in that kind of setting. Um, and then I worked there and I got a Wellcome Trust Mobility Scholarship to be able to go to Australia. So I wanted to go to UNSW, which is in Sydney. Mm -hmm. um, they've got an incredible behavioural neuroscience department, um, along with the great medical sciences um, sort of hub of research that's really focused a lot on uh, animal models of learning and memory, um, behavioural control, um, neuropharmacology. So I was fortunate enough actually to get this sort of six month placement again out there. Um, so it was kind of scary, made a big move going from uh, Birmingham to yeah. Sydney. Um, but at the same time, I found it really liberating because you're going out somewhere to look at something. And also I had this fallback of if I didn't like it, if I didn't want to be on the other side of the world from all my friends and family, that I could just come back. Yeah. And I think that was a real sort of good feeling for me, was that it wasn't entirely like I'm moving my entire life over to another country where I've never been. I've never like been to Sydney. I've never been to university. You know, you like you have the weird like nightmarish dreams beforehand. But yeah, I I went out there and I spent honestly like the the time that I was there was just amazing. And I actually got offered a job while I was out there to stay on. I applied for a fellowship and. I was fortunate enough to be able to stay in Australia, which was a pretty awesome situation to be in. Um, and it really helped me as not just a researcher, but as a person to be able to be more independent and to be my own person. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, they say that your growth really only happens outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Spent, you know, the best part of my life. Was it different to what you expected? Yeah. I mean, I thought that people in Australia just went surfing and hung out at beaches and ate barbecues all the time. <laughs> and, and But really, it's, it's a big city in the same way as, you know, working in London or New York or any kind of westernized countries, large cities. Everyone's got a good work mentality. People are friendly. Um, but you just have this like, awe-inspiring scenery around you as well, which kind of gobsmacks you sometimes when you're like, oh my god, look, there's the opera house. Yeah. Aww. Like, just like walking around. Um, How's the it's, universities? Are they different? Like, is there anything different or are they like the basic components the same, do you reckon? 
the Australian system is, in terms of undergraduate, is pretty similar to the UK system from what I am aware. Mm-hmm. So the one thing that differs the most dramatically, I think, is that your undergraduate degree is either a three-year for your bachelor's, but then you have to stay on for an additional year to do your honours year. And so I feel kind of coming from the UK that we get our honours degree within a three-year period mm-hmm. because you're very focused, like right from the get-go, your lectures, if you're doing a degree in psychology, are all on psychology. Whereas I actually think that the undergraduate first year at in Australia is much more diverse. So people take maybe two courses in their actual degree that they're studying and the rest of it is um i don't want to say fluff but um, is it like the major it, and minor so you have a major and a minor i think it's like that in america as well where you have a major and you can choose a minor it doesn't have to be related to your course yeah but it's something that you do maybe you're passionate about it all yeah yeah but for a lot of students who are really passionate already about what they want to do when they come in that can be quite difficult because you've got all these additional courses that you're doing before you focus. Mm. And that means that you get your bachelor's in three years Mm -hmm. and then you stay on to do an extended research project for your fourth year, which only uh, about 10% of people stay on to do. So that's another competitive course that you have to get into unless you're on a stream directly. So at UNSW, where I was working, so if you were enrolled into a Bachelor of Psychology degree, you were pretty much guaranteed, as long as you kept your GPA or your uh, marks at above a certain threshold, um, you were guaranteed to enter into the honours component of the course, which then is basically doing a full-time research project over the course of a year, or eight months, however it works out, along with some additional courses, like advanced statistics um, in psychology, um, some sort of project-based other kind of interest projects. Um, but then you produce your thesis, like a 10,000-word piece of work. It's almost like a mini-master's. And again, in Australia, your master's degree will take you two years as opposed to one year in the UK. Um two two years full-time. Clinical and forensic psychology are, again, two years master's courses, whereas in the UK, um, clinical psychology is considered to be a doctorate standard, so you do your declin sci. So there's all these sort of subtle differences that you don't see so much. Another thing that I really noticed is that they grade out of 100 here, whereas when I was at university, um, your first was 70. Yeah. So, and so I have my my degree, and people are like, oh my God, you got like 69 in that, or like 72 in that. And in Australia, your first, your, your high distinction is 80 or 85. And it just looks a bit weird on paper yeah. when you're like going in and like showing somebody your um, transcripts that people are like, oh, oh, that's all you've got. I'm like, it's the first. It's the first. I'm really proud of it. Um, 
so oh, okay. there's yeah. there's all these sort yeah. of differences, differences that, yeah. that you don't really yeah. realize yeah. as you're going along but yeah it's i mean the the funding system is very similar to the uk for mm-hmm. science and engineering um people it, it's a very cosmopolitan place there's lots of people from all over the world who you're working with there are a lot of brits in australia um and yeah it is a nice place to come into place i can imagine yeah yeah um and what obviously there are sort of what, ties still to the uk i was like what advice would you give to anyone that's thinking of um researching abroad or going into that kind of field so if you say you wanted to go and do a phd abroad I would massively commend you. I think that doing a PhD abroad or a postdoc abroad is an incredible opportunity to experience life in another country. And it gives you more than just the experience and research. It gives you this insight into how another system works, which I think is particularly important for future employment. If you say you go and work for a large um, company after you've come out of doing a postdoc or a PhD, you've got this additional insight into how things work somewhere else because it's all different and it's all everything varies between universities and countries and whatever. Um, The way that I've got my um, job in Australia really came down to networking at conferences mm-hmm. and getting to know people within the field that I was interested in working at, going to speak to them at conferences, um, and that kind of gave me a feel for what their lab was like, mm-hmm. what research they're doing right now, as opposed to you know things that they published mm-hmm. a year ago or. It takes so long to get publications out when you can sit and see somebody as PhD student or postdoc um, presenting their current work. That gives you more of a feel for what's actually going on out there at the time. Um, So conferences were really important for allowing that kind of uh, linking together. Um, for For doing a PhD abroad, you have to take into account that you'd be an international student and that a lot of international student fees would apply. And that was one thing that helped me back when I thought about applying abroad for my PhD. How much more is it for an international? I think it just depends on where you're actually applying to. But I know that for students who are incoming to Australia as an international student, whereas your fees might be something like 8000 as a domestic student, yeah, as an international yeah, student, you're looking at anything above thirty to 40000 yeah. per year, which is a financial burden that I don't know whether people should be bearing the brunt of mm-hmm. having just come out of an undergraduate degree where you've already paid a lot of tuition fees as well, um, and whether or not the stipends for PhDs are as abundant in terms of for an international student. I think that you have to be that much more exemplary in your your skills and your grades that you might have to be that real star that'd be coming 
for them to be able to fund that discrepancy in the fees. Um, it sounds very bureaucratic and sort of like I know about the inner workings and stuff. But again, there are great ways to get in touch with PIs. I mean, nowadays I see so many people, uh, PIs from like Awesome Labs are on Twitter and they're very open. Um, you can honestly probably just message somebody and like follow them on Twitter. Um, they'll be telling you about their current work or one of their PhD students might be on Twitter or a postdoc, you know, really get a grip for that um, and get in through them, find out what they're like. Um, write a great email to them. Um, and remember that a lot of people are really busy. So have a nicely constructed, perfect email. Why you want to work with them what their work does that is in, of interest to you. Um, so everyone likes to be told that you know that their work is interesting because because as, you know, as, as research scientists you get so much time that's spent you know people knocking your papers or you know telling you that your research grants aren't fundable. So you're like, oh, was my research really that bad? Um, you know, it's important them to you know see that you understand it one thing I would also say is if you're firing off an email to a load of people because you're really really interested in doing a PhD not so much with the people um, get their name right at the email like there is nothing more annoying for me when I get sent all these emails from potential PhD students or postdocs who don't even write my name they'll be like dear professor brown i'm like well that's not me so thanks um yeah, i understand that you've got a generic email that you've spent yeah. time writing but like let's at least get my name right <laughs> so there's there's nothing there's nothing worse than that um as as a a, a pi i would genuinely say like, I will just ignore an email from somebody who hasn't even written my name right. Yeah, and rightly so. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Yeah. Um, particularly if you're, like, wanting them to, you know, pay for you to come out and work in their lab. Um, doesn't go down very well. Um, I would say if you can get to some conferences, if you can make appointments to go meet them, if say you want to maintain a domestic student position, so you want to go and work at a neighbouring university or a university somewhere else, take the time out, just be like, hey, I'd really like to visit your lab, I want to apply for a PhD, um, and when I actually got my PhD position, I hadn't applied for anything via, you know, find a PhD or find a postdoc. All of my positions, realistically, had been from Network. word of mouth and just contacting, being that person who contacts and says, hey, I'm really interested in this. Um, when it comes to postdocs, more that you have to apply as their, their job. But, you know, again, a lot of them are already earmarked for the person who they want. 
So getting in there before they've even advertised the position uh, is really important. So, yeah, um, communicating with people. The world is a really small place now, thanks to the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, so another big question that um, a lot of people who are just about to graduate or are graduating have is um, about student loans. Is that really something that you think about paying it back? Is it overbearing or is it just, it's just a monthly payment or a payment that you have to do and it's not that big of a deal or... What's your take on it? Well, I'm still paying off mine. Um, so, student loans are, are something that you, you... I still think about mine. Um, so, I didn't pay off any of my student loan when I was doing my PhD. So, that was kind of an error I think on my part because it meant that I had kind of this four-year period where my loan just sat in its student loan account and accrued interest um so when I actually became a postdoc and started working then they start deducting the amount out of your bank account but you've got an addition of you're basically paying off a chunk of interest plus then this extra bit that you're chipping away at. So you're really, when you say you're paying off £100 a month from your salary, 30% of that could be just going on paying off the interest. And so that suddenly becomes you're only chipping away at, say, £70 out of your loan, which is, you know, between, you know, Oh, I don't like thinking about it. Um, Tens of thousands of pounds. When you go abroad, you still have to pay your student loan off. Um, I have to fill out forms in August each year to declare how much money I make abroad. I have to maintain, well, I maintain my student, well, my my old UK bank account for this reason. because of how they work it, you can't just pay your student loan out of a foreign bank account as well. So you have to maintain a UK bank account so they won't debit it from a foreign account, I guess because they might have to pay some fees. Um, but yeah, you'll have some, if you go abroad, you'll have some conversations at odd times with the student loans people in Glasgow. Um, and you you will continue paying it off. Um, I've still got a chunk of money that I need to pay off. I do it in, I, I do a big transfer every quarter. So I save up the money yeah. in a different yeah. account in Australia. And then because I get charged fees on a transfer to the UK, I try to put through chunks of money and that's like, then I don't have to think about it for three months or four months. And then I go back and I'll do it again. And I have like a note in my in my uh, calendar saying, pay off your student loan. Um, yeah, it's not insurmountable. Um, so it is doable, it's just something that you just have to deal with. Yeah, it's just more of a, a faff than you 
really want it to be a lot of the time. Um, it's kind of, yeah, that sort of thing that you kind of have to continue doing. Um, I wish as a student I'd been a bit more savvy and had, you know, saved up money and paid off my loan quicker. I wish as a PhD student I'd made paying off a student loan priority as opposed to being like, yes, I fall under the threshold. I don't have to pay this off. That wasn't the most um, smart thing that I did. And I'd probably have cleared my student loan by now. Um, but I think the price for education is such now that it's it's difficult. Like, and, and also it places a burden on students to, again, continue with like paid work at, you know, while studying, which then is just like, you only have so much of like yourself to give to something. And when you start eating away at it, because you know, you've got your uni, you've got your family, you've got your friends, you've got your paid work, you've got your wanting to volunteer, you know, this is all a bit insurmountable at the same time. Um, things have got to give. And education is expensive. And I feel really privileged that I got a scholarship to do, or studentship to do my PhD, mm -hmm. providing me with a stipend, not paying any tax was pretty good. Um, but again, these things kind of come around in the end, you've got to face the music, mm -hmm. pay off your student loan, um, get a job, pay the rent, be an adult. <laughs> Yeah, that's one thing I'm not looking forward to. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, other than like student loans or anything, what um, what's one of the biggest challenges that you faced during your academic life or even your like research life that you would do differently, or what advice could you give to someone that's going into that path of researching just on one thing and. Um, so I think one of the main things that I found is that, so my research now focuses on the neurobiology of obesity. So looking at how diet is affecting the brain. And in that encapsulates more than just saying, oh, I want to look at how diet affects the brain. So I'm actually looking at diet is affecting the body, there's you know, molecular changes, there's genetic changes, there's cognitive changes, and so there's a whole huge range of things that you are kind of have to suddenly become a bit of an expert in. So from going from a basic, you know, trying to be niche and understanding one part of the brain, what happens is when you come to writing your papers or writing your grants so that you can get government funding to mm -hmm. so run your lab and pay for students and rats and um, your lab reagents, is you have to take into account that the people who are reviewing these grants aren't an expert in your field. You're the expert. You have to sell your research to them in a way that they don't feel like you're 
well, in the way that they think that you're an expert and that they think that you have also an understanding of the broader implications of your research and probably their research as well. So you kind of have to become a master of one thing, but at the same time, you have to have an appreciation and in-depth understanding of a lot of stuff that surrounds this issue. I found as well that one of the things is that I felt like the more I know about something, actually the less I know about something. So there's this like ever-expanding horizon. So once you start looking at one aspect, so for instance, I started looking at um, neuroplasticity changes, but that suddenly opens the floodgates for so many other things that you have to have an appreciation of, so it's not...